And so in 1 Samuel, we have the story of David's life. It gives us some backdrop, some, some background to when and, and how all these psalms came to David, through David, and got into our Bible. And that was through a lot of hard times that he went through in history that he had with God walking through the lowest valleys, walking with God as a shepherd when nobody else could see, walking with God when there was this crazy king after him trying to harm him. And so um, the, the last couple of weeks we have, um, or last week we looked at uh, Saul, the life of Saul, the decline of King Saul. Israel wanted a king. They asked for one to be like the other nations, to fight their battles when God was their king. So God gave them a king according to Samuel, the king that they chose. Here's your king, right? So they got what they asked for, a good-looking man who, who was impressive outwardly. He was tall. He looked good. He was handsome. He seemed like a desirable king for the people, okay? But we saw that he had significant character flaws. I mentioned last week that King Saul was like a great-looking car that looks nice and shiny rims and nice sound system and looked great on the outside, but the engine was failing. Not a kind of car that you would want to take a family trip on to Florida in, all right? Looks great at the car wash. Looks great in the driveway, all waxed up and shiny, but not the kind of car you want to take you on a long trip, right? And so we talked a little bit about character, God looking at the heart, God valuing the character of people, especially those who are in leadership for the honor of his name and for the good of those who are being cared for and led. And so we saw um, that God held King Saul to a higher standard, he held him to a higher standard. And this is just the biblical principle that Jesus talked about. To whom much is given, much is required. James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, wrote in James chapter 3, Let not many of you desire to be teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Saul was in a place of leadership. And we saw several significant flaws and failures and sins start to come out in chapter 13. We saw that he presumptuously made a sacrifice, a priestly sacrifice to the Lord when he was supposed to wait for Samuel seven days and he got a little impatient, a little antsy and he decided presumptuously to offer up a sacrifice to the Lord in the name of, I'm gonna worship God. Let's bring an offering to God. And it was there that the prophet Samuel confronted him in his disobedience, in his presumption, in his pride, and confronted him and said that, that he had rejected the word of the Lord. Now God was going to reject him as king, and God would find a man after his own heart. And so in, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, he alludes to King David, this one who would be a man after God's own heart, this one who would uh, embrace and do the will of God and serve God and do his will in his generation. David, a man after God's own heart whom God delights in, a, a choice king that God wants for his people, a good king who ultimately would point us forward to the everlasting eternal king Jesus. And so we see in chapter 13, Saul failed and sinned and, and presumptuously offering sacrifice. We see in chapter 14 that he made a rash vow. He was leading as the commander of the army, as the king, and he says, nobody eat anything until we take vengeance on our, my enemies. And it was a foolish decision. It was a hasty decision. Again, haste and presumption just leads to destruction Leads to trouble, gets many leaders in trouble. And so he does that, and, and he says, cursed be anyone who eats until I, we avenge my enemies. And what happens? His, his son, Jonathan, who's a pretty courageous guy, a pretty mighty warrior, his son, Jonathan, sees some honey, and he eats it. And, he, and he, he goes against what Saul said. He didn't know about it. He didn't know about it. And so when Saul heard about it, he's like, man, you're going to have to go. We're going to have to take you out. 
And yet the army of Israel defended him and said, no, you can't do that. David's a good guy. Don't kill him, Saul. So Saul spared him. But, but, but um, I'm sorry, Jonathan. Saul spared Jonathan. And Jonathan, remember, as we talked about last week, he told his armor bearer, let's go, let's go and, and sneak into the Philistines' camp and maybe the Lord will, will deliver us. You know, he can save by a few or he can save by many. Jonathan's confidence was in God to deliver them, and God fought for Israel, and they won the battle. So we see, we see this presumption, we see this hasty vow, this rash vow that Saul made, and then we, sit, we saw in chapter 15 the important lesson that obedience is better than sacrifice. And we spent some time talking about the, 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 the difficult passage to, to digest, the one that where God says, wipe out the Amalekites. So if you didn't hear that and you want to hear that and you want to, to wrestle with the idea of the God of the Bible sending people into war, go back and listen to that message. I explained, I think, some helpful ideas there that will help you wrestle through that if that's a struggle that you have. Anyhow, Sam, Saul did not obey the, the command of the Lord in chapter 15. He spared King Agag, and he spared, he spared some good spoils from the war, and, and he's happy, he's having a good time, King Agag's happy, everything seems to be going well, and Samuel shows up, and Samuel confronts Saul in his sin, and tells him that obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul was like a religious man who has religious activities going on on the outside to cover up his lack of substance and obedience on the inside. Let me just offer this up to the Lord to kind of make up for, cover up for the lack of obedience. And so Samuel confronted him, and it was a very sad scene at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 15 that we, that we finished with last week. Saul wanted to be honored by the elders and the people. He, he told Samuel, because I feared the people, I did this. He let the fear of man drive his life. And so Samuel told him what was gonna happen and, that, and, 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 then, and, and Saul reaches for Samuel's robe and it tears. And, and Samuel, without skipping a beat, says, God has torn the kingdom from you. You're no longer gonna be king. And Samuel went away from that time very grieved, it says. He was grieved. He was sorry for, for Saul. And it says that the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. So that's where we find ourselves in the story. And now we're introduced to the life of David. I've entitled this message, The Lord Looks on the Heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God was looking at Saul's heart, and Saul had some busy religious activity, and he looked impressive to people, but he lacked substance that God desires and, and looks for in a person, and God forms and shapes in a person, a person like David who God saw him and, and God formed substance and, and he had history with God when nobody else was looking. Let me pray and we'll dig into the text. Father, thank you for your words. I pray that you would increase in us an awareness of your presence. May we see you in this story. May we hear your voice and may we obey today. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. amen. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come the sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you should do. And you shall anoint him whom I declare to you. 
And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling. Do you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse, his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Elab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his outward appearance or on his height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called to Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made the seven sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down here until he comes, until he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing at the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And so Saul said to his servants, Provide me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. There Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took the donkey laden and the bread, a kin of wine, and a young goat, and sent it sent them by David, his, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And, whoever, and whenever the harmful spirit from God is upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed, and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's our big idea this morning. God in his grace chooses ordinary people, and he empowers them by his spirit to do extraordinary things, and he cares more about their heart than their outward appearance. God in his grace chooses ordinary people, and he empowers them by his spirit to do extraordinary things. And he cares more about their heart than their outward appearance. Now, the first thing that I want to highlight is that God addressed Samuel's grief and he gave him an assignment. Samuel, with God, felt grief over Saul and his sin and his disobedience. Samuel was intimate with God. He knew God. He walked with God. And he felt, he felt grieved at, at the end of 15. It says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. And Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Now again, the Lord didn't regret because he made an unwise decision. He didn't regret because he didn't know what was going to happen. He knows all things. All right, this is similar to Genesis chapter 6 when God regretted that he made mankind and he destroyed the entire world because of the sinfulness, the commitment to rebellion and sinfulness. 
And so God knew that this would be a judgment, that, that, that this would be a, a judgment uh, in, in a sense to Israel um, in, in, in giving them the, the king that they asked for and rejecting him. And the Lord said to Samuel, he addresses his grief. He said, how long will you grieve over Saul? We don't know exactly how long this time was, but Samuel went through a time of mourning. And it's appropriate for the people of God to mourn and to grieve when there's sin, when there's brokenness, when there's death, when there's tragedy. Like what happened yesterday when people are killed in the mall, when they're just shopping. It's appropriate for us to grieve and say, God, do something about this. Change this. This is terrible. But there's also a time for the people of God to move forward and not let that grief keep us from the next assignment that God has for us in this life. God had another assignment to give Samuel. And it was appropriate for Samuel to grieve, but the Lord says, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Note that in chapter 12, verse 13, Samuel said, here's the king you chose, Israel, speaking of Saul. But now God's saying, I've provided myself a king among his sons. God has a better choice for a king, for his people, that is going to point us to Jesus, the greatest king, the son of David, as he's called in the Gospels. And so Samuel responds to God's assignment, and he was concerned about Saul's violence or potential violence. He said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. He'll kill me. Now, this isn't the first time or the last time that God has called his people into dangerous spaces to take some risk for him. God does that. He calls us to be as sheep sent out among wolves. So he also says, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Like, don't just naively be walking in and just get yourself killed. Like, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves as you move into dangerous territory. And Saul, courageous, or Samuel, courageously took action. He did what the Lord told him to do. He moved forward even at the risk of Saul killing him. And God gave him some wisdom, okay? Bring a sacrifice, do a sacrifice, okay? And, and so he did. So that was his plan. But there was more to it than just a sacrifice, there is obedience involved. And this is in contrast to Saul, who used a sacrifice to cloak his disobedience in chapter 15 and seem very religious externally. Look what I've done. Hey, I've, I've did what the Lord told me to do. Now God's saying, hey, bring the sacrifice, but I have something more important that needs to happen there, right? There's a new king that's coming on the scene. And Samuel obeyed. Remember the lesson in 1 Samuel 15? We can't miss this in 1 Samuel. To obey is better than sacrifice. Check out that old Keith Green song on YouTube. I, list, I pulled it up on my way home, leaving uh, church yes, last week. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sundays and Wednesday nights. Check it out. It's, it's old school, old style but he gets the message across. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Okay, this is a part of our worship. True worship involves action and obedience in it. It's not just external, lifting our hands, singing our songs, or, or, or bringing our gift to the altar when we have relational conflict that we need to resolve and we're just here at church praising the Lord and we, we've been a jerk all week to our family, our coworkers, our neighbors. We're like, oh, praise the Lord. And you're, it, like God cares more about that, that other bigger thing that needs to be addressed, like loving your neighbor. Because ultimately, that expresses your, your love for him, or genuine love for him. When you love people, 
And so anyhow, Samuel, Samuel was concerned about Saul's violence. He proceeded in obedience in contrast to Saul who brought a sacrifice but disobeyed God. God's looking at the heart in worship. Jesus, Jesus said of the Pharisees, you are those who draw near with the lips, but your heart is far from me. Well did the prophet Isaiah say, in vain they worship me. They draw near with the lips, but their heart is far from me. We don't want to fall into that error of vain worship. The second thing is God's wise choices are counterintuitive to man's. God's wise choices are counterintuitive to man's. God's looking at the heart. He says in verse 6, when, when they came, he looked at Elab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel's thinking, this is the one, the oldest guy. This is the one. Tall, firstborn, a warrior, right? Which you see in chapter 17, he's out on the battlefield with Saul and his army. When David shows up, we're gonna save that, that story for, for you moms next week. I was trying to think, what war story should we use in 1 Samuel for Mother's Day? How about David and Goliath? That's a favorite, right? And so he sees his oldest brother, Samuel does, and Samuel's doing what we all have the tendency to do. Judge a book by its cover. See a person and size them up. Who are they? What do they have? How are they gifted? What's their status? And make judgments according to the outward appearance. This is natural. This is what humanity does. And God says, don't do that. I, I, I operate differently. And I'm gonna invite you to operate more like me. God bless you. And so God's wise choices are counterintuitive and you see it in his words to Samuel, correcting Samuel's perception, correcting Samuel's approach. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. Now God's not against tall people. He's not against good looking people. David was, was handsome, beautiful and ruddy, you know, red hair. Um, David looked good, but, but he, looked, he was probably more like, the, the author's probably saying he's more like, like a boy, right? He's cute, a cute boy, right? God's not against beauty. He just doesn't want us to overemphasize external beauty to the neglect of internal beauty. First Peter tells us when it comes to women and their dress and adorning that they're to focus on the inner beauty of the heart, don't let your, your beauty be merely external, right? This is precious in the sight of God, this quiet and gentle spirit, this beauty on the inside of a godly person, a godly character. And so, so the Lord says, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the New Testament, there's, there's a parallel to this in, in 1 Corinthians, and we went through this last year. And Paul said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose the low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God loves choosing ordinary people to do extraordinary things so that he gets the honor and the glory. So it's not about the person. It's about the great God that the person worships. Or consider Isaiah 55, eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Even the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he says, for now on, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, okay? We see things differently. We are to look at one another differently. And we need God's help. We need God's perspective to do this. We need the spirit. We need to have a relationship with God. We need God to correct our prideful judgments that we make 
upon others when we see them externally. I like to say that that we are to be those who uh, give the benefit of the doubt, to believe the best until proven wrong, right? Let us not be presumptuous and assuming in relationships, lest we cause unnecessary pain and damage relationships and isolate ourselves because of toxic relational skills lacking. Um, and so here's a couple points about David. David looked, was overlooked by his family, but seen and chosen by God. Okay? Notice this. Like, Samuel's there to anoint the next king, Jesse has eight sons, but he only brings seven to present before Samuel. And Samuel's like, hey, we're not going to eat until you bring the other son. Like, do you have another son? Like, one, that's, that's an interesting question. He asked him, do you, are, are all your sons here? Did you forget about one of your sons? Did you leave him in the car? You know, like, where's he at, you know? Um, and, and, and Jesse, he said, well, there, there remains the youngest like, it, it seems to imply here, Jesse didn't even consider him as an option. I'm sure the brothers didn't either. Surely Samuel's not here to talk to baby brother, baby red, right? Um, and so Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him, for we will not sit down here till he comes. Now, you know, you, you want to you hurry up and get that done so you can eat dinner, right? As it said, you, you, I don't care what you call me, but don't call me late for dinner, Right? <laughs> And, and, and so they needed to go get David, and they went, and, get, and where was David? What, what, why wasn't David there? Well, he was overlooked. He was being faithful. He was doing what he, the responsibilities that he was given to do out in the field. And David's obscurity was preparation for his leadership. David lived a life in obscurity, shepherding sheep. This was not a, a, a highly valued, favored job. To be out shepherding sheep in the field, lonely. Where's all the party? Where's all the fun? It's just you and the sheep and the stars. The cold weather, the rain, the dew. Man, this stinks. Man, I wish I could be with my brothers in the the battlefield. And then the sheep are taking off and they're doing the things that sheep do and he's having to go clean them and and do all the things that a shepherd does. And I'm sure it was at times frustrating and and he felt lonely and, and perhaps discouraged, but it was in this space that he cultivated history with God because though he was overlooked by his family, God saw him. The gaze of God was upon him. The favor of God was upon him. This was a man after God's own heart and God had marked his life. Though he was overlooked by people, God saw him and that's what matters. I mean, look at verse 11. Behold, he is keeping the sheep. There's a lot there. A lot there that needs to be unpacked. He had a task, a mundane, obscure task. F.B. Meyer says, no angel trumpet heralded, no faces looked down out of heaven. The sun arose that morning according to his want over, over purple walls of the hills of Moab, making the cloud curtains of saffron and gold. With, with the first glimmer of the light, the boy was on his way to lead the flock to pasture lands with heavy dew. As the morning hours sped onwards, many duties would engross his watchful soul, strengthening the weak, healing that which is sick, binding up which, is, which was broken, seeking that, that which was lost, and music of his song may have feel, filled the listening air. Chuck Swindoll says this. He says, men and women of God, servant leaders in the making, are first unknown unseen, unappreciated, unapplauded, and relentless demand of obscurity, character is built. Strange as it may seem, those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. He says this well. And so David was in in school. He was in training. God was preparing him for leadership, for service. And he had a lot of 
time. Lots of solitude. David's solitude was preparation for his leadership. Chuck Swindoll in his book, and I highly recommend it. You can get this on Audible if you want to listen to it. Uh, Great Lives, The Life of David. He says, if you can't stand to be alone with yourself, you have deep unresolved conflict in your inner life. Solitude has a way of addressing those issues. It is in the schoolroom of solitude and obscurity that we learn to become men and women of God. It is from the schoolmasters of monotony and and reality that we learn to king it. That's how we become like David, men and women after God's own heart. I, I can't say enough about the importance of solitude in my own life and the shaping that has taken place in my life as I have chosen to be alone with God. I'm an extrovert and I wanna be around people. And I can be around people all day. I get energized being around people, but I also need solitude. If I'm going to have any depth depth with God, I need solitude. I need, you need solitude. Just like Jesus would get alone and pray, he would rise early in the morning and he'd go to a, a quiet place where nobody was. And I think the more we're involved with working with people, the more we're around people, we have to find spaces to withdraw for our own mental health, our emotional health, our spiritual health, or we're just gonna keep giving out and giving out until we burn out or blow up. Let's not wait for that. Let's, let's get the, the, the space that we need with God. And I, my wife and I are committed to doing that every morning. I encourage you to find your space daily, whether it's morning or evening or afternoon, find space where you can get filled up with God and connect with God and God can speak to you and shape you and influence you. Otherwise, the world's going to influence you and shape you into its mold. So solitude is important. And David had, fortunately, he had a job that that helped him with that. He had a lot of space to reflect, to pray. And I wonder if he saw the blessing in it in the monotony of his day-to-day. Swindoll says that monotony was, was also one of those elements that God uses. And, and what he means by that is he says that that's being faithful in the menial, insignificant, routine, regular, unexciting, uneventful, daily task of life. Life without a break, without wine and roses, just dull, plain life. Monotony. It's being faithful, though to continue to move forward in the next assignment, doing the next right thing that God has before you and I to do. And lastly, David's responsibility, his responsibility realism. That's what I'm gonna call it here. Swindoll calls it just reality. David's responsibility realism was preparation for his leadership. He says, somehow we've gotten the idea that getting alone with God is unrealistic. And that's not the real world. And and that's not the real world. But getting alone with God doesn't mean you sit in some closet and think about infinity. No, it means that you get alone and discover how to be more responsible and diligent in all the areas of your life, whether that means fighting lions or bears or simply following orders. This is well said. And so when we spend time with God and we get alone with God, the fruit should be that we come back more energized and and built up and ready to do what God has for us in the spaces that he has us in, in our family, on our job, in our community, in our church, right? We bring something. On Sunday mornings, if, if, if this is the only time you sing to God and worship God and hear the scriptures read or read the scriptures, then, then you're not going to bring much to the community that, that God wants you to bring by having history with him Monday through Saturday where you're cultivating an abiding relationship. And then there will be an overflow. So when we, we gather together in this space, there's much more to give. There's much more to celebrate. There's more testimonies to talk about. There's more joy to share, more encouragement, eagerness, ready to share. So here's two important lessons that that Swindoll gives concerning 
David's life here. It's in the little things and the lonely places that we prove ourselves capable of the big things. And when God develops our inner qualities, he's never in a hurry. David got anointed by Samuel, but do y'all know how long it took before he actually became king? Like where he actually be, been, began to king it? It was over 12 years, probably 12 to 15 years or so, right? And so I don't know, if you read the story a little bit further about Saul, it gets a little crazy because because Samuel anointed and God anointed David through Samuel and he's going to be the king, but there were times I'm sure he was questioning, is that gonna happen? Because this guy's throwing spears at me. The, The king that's in front of me is throwing spears at me and he wants to kill me. And he's crazy, he's mad. He has this demonic spirit that is driving him crazy. The other thing I want to highlight is that God gave his spirit to David for service and for leadership. When Samuel anointed him with oil, this is an Old Testament practice and a New Testament practice. The the oil is symbolic to the presence of God, the spirit of God, right? We're told in in James chapter 5, by the way, if somebody's sick, let them call upon the elders of the church for prayer and, and anoint them with oil, Pray over them, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Right? It's, a, it's a common thing. It's not just a charismatic thing or, or some strange thing that some charismatic Christians do. This is a biblical thing, all right? And so Samuel, was an, he anointed David, and something happened. Something shifted. Something changed. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, came upon his life, marked his life anointed him. It says that he, he rushed upon David from that day forward. I don't know if you remember, but several weeks back, Saul had a similar experience when he got anointed as king. The spirit came upon him, and he even, he, he even began to prophesy where, where those around were like, hey, is Saul among the prophets now? Like, man, something's going down with Saul, right? And so we see that the Spirit of God in the Old Testament would come upon people and anoint them and empower them for a particular role, a particular assignment, a particular task. And this happened with Saul. And this happened with David. Unfortunately, what we see in verse 14 is that the Holy Spirit left Saul. The Spirit of God that came upon Saul for the purpose of him leading Israel, left him, and it was replaced by another spirit. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Some translations say an evil spirit. I, I like the ESV, harmful, I think is appropriate, but it can be translated either way. And it, it's highlighting the discipline or judgment of God, where God withdraws and he pulls back his presence from him as a leader. This is a scary thing. No doubt this is why David in Psalm 51, when he had sinned significantly in adultery and murder and covered it up, no doubt this is why he said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. One commentator says this about this evil spirit or harmful spirit. He says that the evil spirit from Jehovah, which came into Saul in the place of the spirit of Jehovah, was not merely an inner feeling of depression at the rejection announced to him, which grew into melancholy and occasionally broke out into passing fits of insanity, but a higher evil power which took possession of him and not only deprived him of his peace of mind, but stirred up feelings, ideas, imagination, and thoughts of his soul to such an extent that at times it drove him even into madness. The demon is called an evil spirit coming from Jehovah because Jehovah had sent it as a punishment. This isn't the first time we see God operating in this way in the, the old covenant. However, I think this must be said in this, in light of the New Testament and in light of the new covenant which we live under, the Apostle Paul describes the work of the Spirit and the place of the Spirit in our lives as one of permanence. 
not one that God pulls, like he gives the spirit and he takes it away, right? And so Ephesians 1 describes, uh, be, because of verses like this in Ephesians 1 and 13 and, and Ephesians 4.30, I'm inclined to believe what, what a, a large majority of theologians believe, namely that when a person truly is a Christian, they are sealed with the Spirit, and the Spirit is with a Christian forever. This is good news. This is purchased for us by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, and he's given us his Spirit to live inside us. Uh, Ephesians 1, 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Uh, chapter four, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Christians have the Spirit of God living inside of them, not merely coming upon them for specific task and role, but we get the dwelling of the Spirit inside of each one of us. And he's here to stay, to make his home. He has made his home in us. We are the temple of God now. Not just when we get to heaven. We're the temple of God now. He dwells in us now and he's here to stay. And we're told to, not, we're told to, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Christians, the same book in chapter five, the same Christians who have the indwelling of the Spirit are told to be filled with the Spirit. And that is to let the Spirit take over every area of your life. Don't, don't call the shots and run the shots anymore. I'll yield to the Spirit of God leading in your life. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in application at the end. But next I want to look at this idea of um, the music therapy that Saul got from David. David's music ministry was a blessing to him. Don't we just love music? Don't we just appreciate the comfort, the soothing of good music, the shaping of, of the truth that comes through beautiful melody and shapes our lives? Well, David was a man who cultivated song and he was a worshiper. And so somebody had an idea. They said, let our Lord command your servants before you to seek out a man who is skillful at playing the lyre. And, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And so Saul said to his servants, provide me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Ironically, Saul didn't know, but I, ironically, the one who God chose to be the next king, who if Saul knew that then, he, he wouldn't have called him in, I'm sure. God sovereignly had Saul choose David to come play his instrument for Saul. And it was a blessing to him. And notice the description of David in chapter 18. One, he, he's, one of, he's a young man. Uh, behold, I've seen a, a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, who is skillful at playing. He's a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. What a wonderful description. Gosh, love that to be true of my life. And so I don't know how long this was before David was anointed by Samuel to, to be the king and, and this took place. Uh, but um, we're not told of, uh, uh, besides the lion and the bear, we're not told of other acts of war or battle that, that uh, David engaged in. But he did take out a lion and a bear. That's pretty impressive as a shepherd with a slingshot. I don't know if I have the courage to face a lion and a bear. I can run pretty fast and I can climb trees and hop fences. But a lion and a bear, unless, unless it's coming at my, my family or, or uh, somebody I love, then, then I'm, I'm, I'm out, right? David laid down his life for these little sheep that he was caring for. And so this was the description of him. And so, so he was brought into Saul's presence. David came to Saul and he entered his service. Remember, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. And Saul sent Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. 
That sounds like a promotion, okay? No longer out in the fields by yourself with stinky, smelly sheep. No, no covering. The weather can be rough at times. Like, coming to the palace now, right? And David was ready for this. He could handle this. It was, it was his time for this. this. God had prepared him for this moment. But it wasn't going to be an easy road, <laughs> Because a lot of trouble came in the next in the years to follow. A lot of trouble. Similar to Jesus when he was filled with the Holy Spirit upon baptism. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. And for 40 days and 40 nights he didn't eat. And he was tempted by the devil. Before he started his ministry. And so we see David playing beautiful music. And, and I, I think... I want to say so much more. I haven't left space for this, but I want to say so much more about the value of being a melodious singing people, right? So the the Bible is is filled with um, with songs and, and calls to worship God with songs from Genesis to Revelation. We're, we're taught about music, and music is going to be in heaven. So if you have if you don't like music, then you know you might not like that about heaven. But God's wired us. He's given us an ear for it. It's pleasing to the ear. It's a good, good thing. And, you know, it was Martin Luther who, who thought that the, the Reformation wasn't complete until not, not only that people would have the Bible in their own native tongue to read, but also a hymnal in their hand to sing hymns. And, and, and Luther was huge on discipleship through song, through music. He would take, he would take the secular songs of the, of the bars, of the pubs, and he, the melodies, and he would put biblical truth in them. And, and the people of God would sing them. And they'd be catchy, and it would work. It would be effective. You, you, you connect melody and, and, and truth, and you, you use it for the glory of God. I mean, you just think about how, how powerful, I mean, the ABCs. I mean, how many of y'all learned the ABCs through a melody? All right, and the Hebrews did this too. Psalm 119, which David wrote, and, and a couple other Psalms, they, they, they start with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in each section. And so it's, it's doing more than just teaching truths about God. It's also teaching, you know, the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. And so melody has, is a powerful way to to teach one another, to, to, to experience God. Song and music is a powerful way to experience God. Perhaps in our time with God, when we're, when we're singing to him in response to revelation of who he is, perhaps that's the pinnacle of our, our time with God if we're doing that. Where we're just, we've been brought, where we're delighting in God and we're expressing that in a praise, in a song. And you don't have to be the best singer to do that. We're, we're wired to praise. We're wired, we, we do it all the time. And, and the things we say about what we enjoy most and what we delight most in in this life. And so David was a worshiper and his music, his skillful playing as he played was music therapy to Saul. Saul had some comfort, some therapy, but he didn't have the spirit. He needed, he, needed, he needed some help, and, and David was uh, a comfort to him. And so let's close in a couple points of application here. First, avoid judging a book by its cover regarding or regarding people according to the flesh. Like God, we want to be those who look at the inner person. And ultimately, we, we don't have the discernment that God has to know somebody's true motives, to know somebody's heart. You know, we can hear their words. What, whatever's in our heart comes out of our mouths. That's fruit from our hearts. Right? Actions speak about uh, as fruit, you know. But ultimately, only God can judge people's hearts and knows people's hearts. There's a lot of people who we think are great people that maybe on the inside are not as great as we think. But God can see through that facade. And there's a lot of people who may be a lot worse than we think, and God sees through and sees them differently than we do. And so Paul said, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, okay? Listen to uh, Eugene Peterson, his paraphrase of these verses. He says, because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We've looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong. As you know, we certainly don't look at him that way anymore. 
Now we look inside. What we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, created anew. The old life is gone. A new life emerges. We're new creations in Christ Jesus. And so we should see the church through that grid of the gospel and what Christ has done and who Christ has made us. We're family now. So we've got to learn to get along, love each other, because we're going to spend eternity with each other. Swindoll says that God's solutions are often strange and simple, so be open. God's selections are always sovereign and sure, so be sensitive. Embrace faithfulness and obedience in the mundane small things in life, knowing that God sees your heart and he will reward you. Jesus said, if you're faithful in the little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonored, if you're dishonest in the little things, you will be, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. Swindoll says that God's promotions are usually sudden and surprising. So be ready. God's promotions are usually sudden and surprising, so be ready. I'm sure David wasn't expecting what was gonna happen that day. He was just doing what God had called him to do, keeping the sheep, cultivating history with God, developing character. And lastly, be filled with the Spirit. Let's be a Spirit-filled church, City Church Garland. Be filled with the Spirit and address one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. This is what the Apostle Paul told the church to do, to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Spirit-filled people are a melodious people, a singing people. And we're to teach one another with songs. We're to encourage one another with songs. And so let's do that. Amen? Kevin, would you come up and lead us? Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of songs, psalms, that we have to give us language to our grief, language to our joy, language to our fear, vocabulary to our hope. Teach us to immerse ourselves in those psalms and let there be an overflow in our lives of worship. May we be shaped by your truth, the word of your truth and the power of your spirit. May we, may we be a people of the scripture and a people of the spirit here at City Church Garland. For the glory of your name and for the joy of your people.